0: Well, hey, everybody, I'm Adam Shell, the pastor of Melbourne Heights, and welcome to our sermon podcast. Now, right now at Melbourne Heights, we are in the middle of a sermon series that we're calling Mosaic. And throughout this series, we are exploring different stories or different pieces from Jesus's time on this earth to see what these stories can tell us about who Jesus is. And just like when you add another piece into a mosaic work of art, it makes the picture a little clearer. Every story that we read about Jesus is going to help us get a clearer picture of who Jesus is. And in this week's episode, we are focusing in on a story of Jesus calling his first disciples. And we're going to see what the good news is that Jesus calls his disciples to. So let's get right into this episode sermon. So right now at Melbourne Heights, we are in the middle of a sermon series that we're calling Mosaic. And throughout this series, we are exploring different stories or different pieces from the life of Jesus to help us better understand who Jesus is. And just like adding another piece into a Mosaic art of work makes the picture in that Mosaic a little bit clearer, every story about Jesus gives us a clearer picture of who Jesus is. Every story about Jesus gives us a clearer picture of who Jesus is. But before we dive in and start talking about the story from Jesus' life that we're going to focus in on today, there's another story that I want to tell you first. And this story begins with these words. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epic of belief. It was the epic of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. We had everything before us. We had nothing before us. We were all going direct to heaven. We were all going direct the other way. These 85 words. They were first written by Charles Dickens in 1859, as he began to tell one of the most famous tales in the history of fictional literature, A Tale of Two Cities. And these 85 words, they set the scene for us. They set the stage and show us what life was like in London, England, and in Paris, France in 1775. 1775. That's one year before colonists on the other side of the Atlantic would begin a revolution against the British. It was 14 years before another revolution would happen in France that would overthrow the monarchy there. So, in 1775, it was the best of times, if you were part of the aristocracy. If you were part of the aristocracy, then you had money and you had power and you had security and you had the knowledge that the, the world's two greatest and most mighty militaries were at your disposal. If you were part of the aristocracy, you had plenty of food on your plate and plenty of wine in your cup. But in 1775, it was the worst of times for everyone else. Because if you weren't part of the aristocracy, then you had no money. The aristocracy was always taking it away from you. And you had no power because you were told that the divine rule of kings said that God favored the kings and nobles above everyone else. If you weren't part of the aristocracy, you had no security and you lived under the constant threat that people who were hungry or poor would tear down your doors and take away whatever meager possessions you might have. If you weren't part of the aristocracy then you had no control over the military aside from the fact that you may be forced to serve in the king's army and listen to the orders of others. If you weren't part of the aristocracy, you didn't have food on your plate. You didn't have wine in your cup. And you lived under the constant fear of violence because of the insecurity and the world all around you. But it was also the spring of hope for people in the lower classes, and it was the winter of despair for those in the aristocracy. And that's because people in the lower classes were sick and tired of the way that the world was. They were sick and tired of barely scraping by while the members of the upper classes lived lives that were far beyond their means. They were sick and tired of living under the fear of not knowing when they would run out of food. They were sick and tired of being forced to serve in the king's army and only following orders that seemed to benefit the elite. They were sick and tired of not having enough food to eat, not having enough of anything to drink. And they were sick and tired of how life had been for them. So they were ready for a revolution. And a revolution is exactly what they got. The world would be turned upside down as the American colonists and the French would lead revolutions that would overthrow the oppressive monarchies that had ruled them for centuries. And soon, constitutions would be written that guaranteed citizens of both of these nations certain inalienable rights. Kings and noblemen would be replaced with representatives who were elected to truly represent all people, the poor and the rich alike. The kingdoms of old were going away, and the kingdoms of new, the nations of new, were being born. So it was the best of times, and it was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom, and it was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief, and it was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light, it was the season of darkness. It was a spring of hope, and it was a winter of despair. We had everything before us, and we had nothing before us. We were all going direct to heaven, and we were all going direct the other way. Yes, these 85 words, they were first written by Charles Dickens in 1859, as he began to tell the tale of those two cities. But these words, they're not just true for what life was like in London, England, and Paris, France, centuries ago. These words are also true for what life was like long before the nations of England or France ever began to emerge. These words were true for what life was like when Jesus walked this earth. Because when Jesus walked this earth, It was the best of times. If you were part of that group of people who ruled over the Roman Empire, if you were the emperor or governor who oversaw one of the territories or one of the political or religious leaders that was appointed by the emperor to serve, then it was the best of times. And it was the best of times because you had money to spare. You were able to build lavish palaces and opulent religious shrines all on the money that you took from other people. You had the power of having the world's greatest military at your disposal and knowing that they would stand up for your cause. You had the security of knowing that a battalion of Roman soldiers would lay down their life for you without any hesitation or any question. You had plenty of food on your plate. You had plenty of wine to drink. You often attended opulent uh, celebrations and you threw lavish dinner parties yourself where you threw away enough food to feed multitudes. But if you weren't part of that ruling class in the Roman Empire, then it was the worst of times. You didn't have any money at all, because the ruling classes constantly overtaxed you and took away what little you did have. You didn't have any power, and you knew that even daring to stand up to the powers that be would be enough to put your life at risk. You didn't have any security because you knew that you could be forced away from your home at any point by a Roman soldier. Or that the landowner whose fields you worked and farmed, that they could sell you off to help pay off one of their debts. Your plate was empty, your cup ran dry, and you watched as the pigs out in the royal fields ate better than you did. That's what life was like in the Roman Empire when Jesus walked this earth. And that's what life was like in London, England and Paris, France a couple of centuries ago before the American and French revolutions took place. And as hard as it may be to hear, that's what life is still like for a whole lot of people living in this world today. And that's because we live in a world that values gaining wealth and power even at the cost of other people. We live in a world that prioritizes things like pedigree and privilege, where who you are it doesn't matter nearly as much as who you know and where you're from. We live in a world that tells us that we need to protect everything that we've acquired from the people that we've taken it from. So that means that we are constantly building bigger armies and higher fences and more powerful weapons to protect ourselves from ourselves. To put it simply, we live in a world Where we are only worried about ourselves. We live in a world where we are only worried about ourselves. Whether we like it or not, this is what the kingdoms of this world are like. The kingdoms of this world, they tell us that we need to be selfish and we need to look out for number one because no one else is going to do it. The kingdoms of this world, they tell us that we deserve the very best that this world has to offer. And we also deserve it at the best possible prices, even if that means that the clothes that we wear the electronics that we purchase are built halfway around the world by children that are making pennies a day and even if these same products are sold to us right here in the United States by undervalued, underappreciated workers who are scraping by on minimum wage. We live in a world where the kingdoms of this world tell us that anyone who isn't just like us is a threat to us, and we need to protect ourselves by attacking them before they can come after us. This is what the world is like for so many people today what the world was like when Jesus walked this earth as well. When Jesus walked this earth, the kingdoms of this world had no problems trying to silence the voice of anyone who opposed them. The kingdoms of this world had no problem imprisoning anyone that they deemed to be a threat. And in the passage of scripture that we're going to be looking at today, we're going to get a glimpse of what the world was like that Jesus lived So the passage that we're going to be looking at today, it comes from the book of Mark. Now, Mark is the second book that we find inside of the New Testament, and there are are essentially two types of books in the New Testament. You either have books that tell you the story of Jesus, or you have books that tell you how you can be a better follower of Jesus. Well, the book of Mark is the first kind of book. It tells us the story of Jesus. So the passage that we're going to be looking at today, we're going to see what the world was like that Jesus lived in. So we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 1 together, where we'll start reading in verse 14. So here's what Mark writes. Mark writes, after John was put in prison. And we're going to stop right there for just a minute. Because those six words, after John was put in prison, they set the stage for everything else that's going to happen in the passage that we're looking at. In these six words, they tell us that John the Baptist has been put in prison. And he has been put in prison by the order of the governor who was overseeing the area of Israel in those days. A person who was appointed to that position by the emperor himself. So the governor over Israel in those days was Herod. But what horrible crime had John the Baptist committed in this story that made it so that he needed to be arrested and imprisoned? Well, the book of Matthew, or Matthew's biography of Jesus, it tells us what John the Baptist did. And the horrible crime that John the Baptist committed was that he had the nerve to tell Herod that Herod could not marry his own brother's wife. That's right. Poor old Herod was told that he couldn't marry his own brother, Philip's wife, by that mean old John the Baptist. Now, can you imagine a more heinous crime than that? I mean, yeah, sure, there's murderers out there, and yeah, there's people that rob banks, and yeah, there's those con artists that will swindle money away from some of the most vulnerable members of society, but this criminal mastermind, John the Baptist, had the nerve to tell Herod, who was one of the most powerful people in the world in those days, what he could, could or could not do. So Herod as John the Baptist, thrown into prison. And that's what the kingdoms of this world are like. The kingdoms of this world, they try to silence the voice of anyone who opposes them while they magnify the voices of their own dangerous and destructive messages. The kingdoms of this world have no problem imprisoning people who are innocent while those who are wicked prosper. But as we continue reading, see that all of that is about to change. So let's turn back to Mark chapter 1, where we'll start reading in verse 14 again. So once again, here's what Mark writes. It says, after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee preaching the good news from God. He said, the right time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Change your hearts and lives and believe the good news. So you hear what Jesus said? Jesus says, the right time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Change your hearts and your lives and believe the good news. Now, just in those couple sentences that Jesus speaks in this passage, that's enough to uplift our spirits because Jesus tells us that something new is coming. But when we read what Jesus says in this passage, it should also leave us asking one great big question. And that question is, what is the good news that Jesus is talking about? What is the good news? And I know that that can sound like a funny question to ask inside the church. Because we talk about good news in the church a lot. We talk about it when we're reading from the Gospels, a genre of literature that literally means good news. It tells us the story of Jesus. We talk about it when we're reading from a specific translation of the Bible that came out back in 1966 called the Good News Translation. We talk about it when we sing hymns the, with lines that say things like, tell the good news, tell the good news. And if we keep singing those songs, we even hear what the good news is when we're told that Christ is come. So what is the good news? We say that the message, the good news that Jesus is talking about is the news that Christ is come. But my question for you is, Is that news enough, is that good news enough to draw Simon and his brother Andrew and James and his brother John away from their fishing nets and their fishing boats to cause them to leave behind their livelihoods so that they can follow Jesus? Because that's exactly what happens right after Jesus proclaims this message in the book of Mark. We'll go back to Mark chapter 1 and I can show you what I mean. Once again, we'll start in verse 14. Mark writes, after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee preaching the good news from God. He said, the right time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Change your hearts and lives and believe the good news. When Jesus was walking by Lake Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew throwing a net into the lake because they were fishermen. Jesus said to them, come, follow me, and I will make you fish for people. So Simon and Andrew immediately left their nets and they followed him. Going a little farther, Jesus saw two more brothers, James and John, the sons of Zebedee. They were in a boat, mending their nets. Jesus immediately called them, and they left their father in the boat with the hired workers, and they followed Jesus. So for all of us that have gathered together to worship today, whether you are here in person or you're joining us online right now, the news that Jesus is come. It's not just good news. The news that Jesus has come is great news. It's the best news ever. But what about those very first people? What Was it good news enough to make Simon and Andrew and James and John leave behind their nets and their boats and their very livelihood? Or was there more to this message than the news that Christ has come? Well, I think that there is more to the news, that it, to the good news and the fact that Jesus has come. And I think if we take a closer look at the passage in the Gospel of Mark that we just read, we'll see what that good news is, because the good news that Jesus proclaims, the good news that's enough to make Simon and Andrew and James and John follow Jesus is hidden in plain sight. So, what is the good news? What is the good news that drew Simon and Andrew and James and John away from their livelihood, away from their nets, away from their boats? Well, Jesus says what that good news is for us. When he says, the kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is near. But why is it good news that the kingdom of God is near? Well, it's good news because if God's kingdom is near then the kingdoms of this world are going away. If God's kingdom is near, then the kingdoms of this world are going away. And let me explain why that would have been such good news for Simon and Andrew and James and John, these fishermen. It would have been good news for them to hear that the kingdoms of this world were going away because the kingdoms of the world are who were treating these fishermen like they were second-class citizens. The kingdoms of this world were the ones that were overtaxing these four fishermen on everything that they caught so that they could help pay for the lavish lifestyles the rulers of Rome were leading. The kingdoms of this world were the ones that were threatening to imprison people for no good reason at all. The kingdoms of this world were the ones that were keeping food off of these fishermen's plate and keeping wine out of their cups. So it was good news to hear that the kingdoms of this world were going away. But it was even better news to hear that a new kingdom is coming. A new kingdom is coming where the king will actually care about people. And he shows us how much he cares about people by leaving his lavish palace and coming down and walking with us, living with us, and living like us. A new kingdom is coming where people will no longer have to worry about having the most basic necessities in life. And we will all be assured that we can have things like food and water regardless of our wealth. A new kingdom is coming where every human being will be treated with care. Our neighbors, our brothers, and our sisters, all across the world. And a new kingdom is coming where we will realize that every human being has infinite value and worth and deserves to be cared for. A new kingdom is coming where fishermen and tax collectors and religious leaders and political appointees can all stand together and worship and serve the same king. A new kingdom is coming where justice will truly be done and not just bought by whoever has the most money. A new kingdom is coming. And this kingdom will be a far better kingdom, infinitely better for all people, including us. And the king of this kingdom, Jesus, calls us to be Part of it. Jesus wants us to be a part of this new kingdom. So this new kingdom, this new king, they are a piece in the mosaic of who Jesus is. But it's up to you to figure out where this piece fits into your understanding of Jesus. Now, for some of us, we want this piece to play a prominent role in our picture and understanding of who Jesus is because we are sick and tired of living in a world that treats us the way that it does. But for other people, we want to hide this piece down in a corner. We want to get rid of it altogether because we are more than happy with how things are. But regardless of what you do with that piece. You cannot change the fact that it is part of who Jesus is. So if you want to be a part of the kingdom that Jesus is calling us to be a part of, this new kingdom that is changing everything, turning it upside down, then you have to be willing to walk away from the ways of this world. You have to be willing to walk away from the ways of injustice, the ways of oppression, the ways of hatred, the ways of bigotry, the ways of spite and the ways of selfishness. And you have to embrace and walk in the ways of Jesus, the ways of compassion and justice, the ways of kindness and mercy, the way of love. So the kingdom that Jesus is calling us to calls us to give up so much to be a part of it. Jesus literally calls us to walk away from the only kingdoms that we have ever known. But when we follow Jesus, when we accept his call, we're called to be a part of a far, far better kingdom than we have ever known before. And that is truly good news. God, as we come to you in this time of prayer, you know what the world we live in is like for so many of us. We live in a world that values power and money above all else. We live in a world that is more than willing to see us set people aside who aren't able to help us along the way. We live in a world where we treat far too many like they're second or third class citizens, where they are little more than means to an end for us in our lives. God, you know that we're tired of a world that treats so many of us that way. God, we want to be a part of a kingdom where the king really cares about us. We want to be a part of a kingdom where everyone, all of your children, are taken care of. We want to be a part of a kingdom where every single one of us, regardless of our background or anything that we've experienced, can stand beside one another, worshiping you and serving you. We want to be a part of a kingdom that is infinitely better than what we've ever experienced on this earth. So God, help us to see that you are calling us to be a part of that kingdom. But in order to be in that kingdom, we have to walk away from the kingdoms of this world. We have to set aside the lives, the ways that we have lived and followed our entire lives. We need to follow you embracing the ways of your kingdom, embracing the ways of hope, of mercy, of grace, of love. So God, help us to truly be citizens of your kingdom. We pray it in Jesus' name. Well, hey, it's Adam again, and I just want to thank you for tuning in to this episode of our sermon podcast. And I hope that this episode has shown you what the kingdom of God is all about. And it is a different kind of kingdom than anything that we've ever experienced in this world, but it's also a far, far better kingdom than we could possibly imagine. Well, in our next episode, we're going to continue on exploring stories from Jesus's life to see what these stories can teach us as we try to better understand who he is. So hope that you'll tune in when our next episode drops and hear that episode as well. As always, if you subscribe to our podcast, that episode will be sent straight to your favorite podcasting app. And while you're there, leave us a rating and review to share the word about this podcast with others. And don't forget that you can also come and worship with us live every Sunday morning at 1030 a.m. Eastern time. We'd love to have you with us. Well, Until next time, I'm praying for you. Hope you have a great week and we'll see you back here soon for another sermon podcast.